Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. One of the exciting things about being alive and being a part of this world is that we get to participate in the things of this world. We get to do things. We get to make choices. We get to establish relationships with other people. We can be involved in the creation of inventions and find new ways to use the things that are at our disposal here on this earth. There are many things that we can do or we have the ability to do or that we have the privilege of doing in this world. And to me, this is a wonderful opportunity to be alive, to be a part of this world at this time in history. Now, I believe that the evidence is overwhelming to say that there is a God. I do not hesitate in saying that at all. And I believe that there is a God who is actively involved in this world that he has created as well. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. I sincerely believe that there is a God, that the evidence is overwhelming to show that that is true, and I believe that he is an active participant in this world, just as each one of us are active participants in this world. And I believe that this is the greatest time in the history of history to be alive and to be a part of the creation that God has made. Especially because this is the time when our God is resurrecting people from the dead. Before the time of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, before that time, humanity was in a condition of being spiritually dead. Spiritually dead in the sense that we did not have the indwelling presence of the spirit of life that had originally been breathed within Adam and Eve. And that the Messiah came at a certain point in history for the purpose of restoring that life to humanity, to those who would be willing to receive what he was offering. And I believe that after the Messiah came, died, resurrected, and instituted the new covenant, which has to do with the restoration of this life that had been lost in Adam, I believe that we are now in a time in history where our God is actively involved in the greatest creation of life that has ever occurred, and perhaps will ever occur, I honestly don't know, but I believe that considering the past and comparing it with the present, that this is a great time, that this is an exciting time to see the intervention of God in the lives of people and to have the privilege of being able to participate in the work that he is doing. Throughout the course of history, the Lord has been involved, he has participated, he has intervened, sometimes in a very profound and public way, other times he has done so in a very subtle and private way. 
and I believe that the subtle ways are no less important than those ways that he intervened in a very profound and public way, as we would consider those interventions to be, such as the parting of the Red Sea. That certainly was a very serious event. It was a very public event that changed the course of history. But there were other times when he intervened in what we would call subtler ways that perhaps we might not consider to be as important because the magnitude of the event in our eyes is not necessarily as great. In this program, I'm going to talk about the miracle of Hanukkah. The miracle of Hanukkah, when our God intervened and performed a miracle that we have documented, the miracle of causing one day's worth of oil to continue to burn for eight days in the temple. And I believe that this is a significant miracle that people don't talk about very often, but I believe is something that we should consider, that we should really pay attention to, not just because of the miracle itself, but also because of the events surrounding that miracle and what took place after this miracle, because the events that were surrounding this miracle that were taking place that resulted in this, these events were nothing more than the foundation. They were the precursors or the foundationary events that resulted in a number of other events and decisions that people made that had very profound effects, not only in the history of the world, but also in the lives of people. For example, there are many people who participate in a practice known as baptism, considered to be a religious practice that was established through the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist, but it actually has its history in the events surrounding the miracle of Hanukkah, which was about 150 years or so before the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist the subject of baptism had already been established, but it was established for a reason. And that reason has its roots, it has its foundation in what happened as a result of the Maccabean Wars and the intervention of the living God. And so I'll be spending some time talking about the subject of Hanukkah. Most of what I'm going to be talking about is historical content. This is going to be more of a historical series as opposed to a doctrinal or an inspirational set of programs. I'm going to be talking about this from a historical point of view because there are a lot of important historical details that I believe are really important that a person should understand in order to truly appreciate what led up to this miracle and what happened during this miracle and, of course, what happened after this miracle, because as I just explained, there were many things that did result from this miracle and what happened and what transpired after this that I believe is very important. And without this historical foundation, I honestly don't believe that a person can truly appreciate these other things that unfolded as a result. And so I'm going to talk about these foundationary issues in this series of programs. Now, I'm going to begin this subject in 188 B.C. It's just a place to start. You have to pick some place to start. I believe that 188 B.C. is probably the best place to start to talk about these events and what happened, why things happened, and what happened as a result of the decisions that people made. 
In 188 BC, we had the Treaty of Apamea, and I'm not very good at pronouncing Greek words, and so try to have some patience with me concerning the words that I'm going to be mentioning. But to begin with, there was the Treaty of Apamea, which was between Rome and Antiochus III of the Seleucid Empire. This treaty was signed in 188 BC. Some of the events that took place just before this were the Battle of Thermopylae, which was in 191 BC. There was the Battle of Magnesia in 190 BC, and so this is just two to three years later, in 188 BC, when the treaty was signed to say that the war between the Romans and the Greeks was over. Now, this treaty was, of course, the definition of the terms of the end of the war, and these terms were well defined. Some of the terms or conditions related to this treaty included hostages that the Seleucid Empire, Antiochus the Third, was the head of the empire at that time. He would have to give twenty hostages to Rome. They would be held in Rome, and they had to be rotated every three years. He would have to give them new people who would be held there as hostages. They were to be members of the royal family, except for the successor Seleucus the Fourth, and the event that Antiochus the Third died, which of course he did. He died a year later, and then his son took power. But other members of the royal family were taken to Rome, and they were held there as hostages. One of the hostages that was taken to Rome was Seleucus's brother Antiochus the Fourth, who is the villain in the traditional Hanukkah story. I'll be talking about him later. For now, I just want you to understand that one of the provisions was that there were hostages that were taken to Rome and that they were held there in order to ensure that whoever was in charge would do the other things that he was supposed to do. Otherwise, they would execute his family. That was what that provision was about. Now, in addition to that, the Seleucid Empire would have to provide the Roman Empire with a significant amount of gold. The Greeks would have to pay the Romans, partially for the war, but also for other things. They would have to provide a significant amount of gold to the Romans if they wanted to have peace. That this was a condition of the Treaty of Apamea, and they had to provide Rome with fifteen thousand talents over a twelve-year period. To describe this in modern terms, that would be five thousand. 626 tons. It would be somewhere around there, and there are about 2,000 pounds per ton. And so you can do the math from there and figure out how much work would it take you to acquire 15,000 talents. It would take quite a bit. Now, during the time when this treaty was established, the amount of labor that would be required in order to get 15,000 talents over a 12-year period of time. The amount of labor that would be required was substantial and would require a significant amount of the population of that area at this time. Now, of course, the population is a bit uncertain. We don't have enough records to be able to say exactly how many people were in the Seleucid Empire at the time when the treaty was signed, but I can say that it was a significant number of people. Let me give you an example. If a person was to do nothing but acquire the gold to do the work of mining and refining, if one person 
was completely devoted to the task of acquiring this gold, it would take about 360,000 people to be fully devoted in order to acquire enough gold every year for 12 years in order to meet the demands of the Romans through the Treaty of Apamea. It would take a little bit less than that, about 358,846 is my approximation. It would take about 360,000 people if that was all that they did. But, of course, you can't expect 360,000 people to just do that because they're going to have to eat. They're going to have to have clothing. There are other things that they are going to require that have to be supplied to them. And so if we consider all of the costs in order to get that many people to work, the number is actually much bigger. It's closer to 1,800,000. It's about 1,800,000 people per year for 12 years is about what it would take in order to meet the demands of the Romans through the Treaty of Apamea. This is a significant number of people. Now, I don't know what the percentage of the population this would have been, but I can say with a reasonable degree of confidence that this would be a very noticeable number of people. It would be a substantial portion or a substantial percentage of the population that survived the war. And so this was a very serious matter. It was a serious burden on the government and on the population to meet the demands of this treaty in order to survive because they had lost the war. They were not able to win the war. They conceded and agreed to a treaty, and this was the price that they agreed to pay in order to prevent Rome from completely destroying the country and all the people. Now, the government was responsible. They were responsible for providing this gold to Rome. Antiochus III made the agreement. He gave an initial deposit of 500 talents, and then when the treaty was ratified by the Senate in Rome, then he had to provide them with an additional 2,500 talents. And then over the next 12 years, they provided 1,000 talents per year in order to get to the total of 15,000 talents. And so Antiochus III set all of this up, and then his son, Seleucus IV, took responsibility for this. A year later, his father, Antiochus III, died, and so Seleucus IV was in power in 187 BC, and he was personally responsible to ensure that Rome got paid. Now, the government, Seleucus IV, he could only acquire the gold in one of four ways. The first way is to just simply take it. Take it from the people, and we would call that direct taxation. You see, the government itself doesn't produce any gold. They don't do any work. All they do is take from somebody else. That's all that they can do, and then give it to another person. They don't have a 1,800,000 person workforce that can go and do something productive. That's just simply not the way governments are. And so he would have to take it from the people through taxation. Now, of course, they're not going to be able to get it all through taxation. You can only take so much from the people before they simply have nothing more to give or they simply will not do the work anymore. They simply will not 
do the labor in order to provide for that level of taxation. And so the government would have to use other mechanisms to acquire the gold. The second way that they could acquire the gold was by borrowing the gold. If they couldn't take it directly through taxation, they might be able to borrow it, promising to pay that gold back plus a little bit extra. They could make an agreement such as that, but I don't see any indication that Seleucus IV made a decision like that in order to borrow the gold from his population. The third way that a government can acquire gold like that is to tax it indirectly. Not directly, but indirectly. And the indirect taxation method that's most commonly used is called inflation. What they would do is they would call in the coinage and then they would reissue the coinage with a little bit less gold than what it had before or a little bit less silver than what it had before. They would inflate the currency. Inflation is an indirect tax. It is a way that governments throughout the course of history have been able to meet their obligations. They do so by taking the value out of the currency and they use that value in order to meet their obligations. And then the fourth way that a government can acquire the gold or the money that they would need in order to meet their obligations is through war. They can just simply go and invade another country and take whatever wealth they have and then use that in order to pay their expenses, meet their obligations. And so you have direct taxation, you have borrowing, you have indirect taxation through inflation, or you have war. Those are the only ways that Seleucus is going to be able to acquire the gold that he needs. Now, I don't know exactly what it took for him to get the gold, but what I do know is that he did get the gold, he did pay Rome according to the treaty, I do know that he was under some pressure concerning this debt, but that he did meet the obligations that his father had established in 188 B.C. Now, Seleucus IV was very much involved with his people, not just from the point of view of taking gold from them. He was also very much involved with the people by giving to the people. And so there was a surplus when you considered all of his activities and all of the taxation and borrowing and indirect taxation and war that he engaged in, he did have a surplus, and he used the surplus for various projects, for various things. One of the things that he used his surplus for was to provide for the sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. So Lucius IV paid for the sacrifices that were happening in the temple, he provided all of the funds in order to ensure that the sacrifices would take place, and the temple enjoyed the benefit of the surplus in that way. And so the relationship between Seleucus IV and the temple in Jerusalem, which would include the Jewish people at large, that relationship was reasonable. It was a pretty good relationship. The people benefited. They enjoyed a portion of the surplus that had been acquired. And so the relationship between the Jews and the Greeks at this time was reasonably stable. There weren't any major conflicts that were happening at this time in history. Yes, the Greeks lost the war to Rome. They were under a significant amount of pressure, but the Jews were not under the same kind of pressure because they were receiving benefit from the government 
to what degree that benefit was greater than the taxation that they were under. We don't have that much information to know, but we do know that it was to a degree or to a level that the people were able to withstand it. Now, these contributions that were being made to the temple were very, very significant. They were very significant, not necessarily because of the amount of gold that was being given to the temple, but they were very significant in the history, in the events that took place afterwards, because there was a time when it was discovered that the temple didn't need that money. And this caused a number of problems, which resulted in several decisions that led up to the events that started the Maccabean Wars. Now, in the next program, I'm going to talk about some of these specifics. I'll explain what happened between the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem, who was Onias, and the governor of Jerusalem, whose name was Simon. You see, the problem was was that Simon was very corrupt, which meant that he was obtaining personal benefit from the money that he had at his disposal instead of using it for the appropriate purpose that the money was supposed to be used for, given that he was the governor of that area, and he was responsible to ensure that the resources were used appropriately. But to personally benefit beyond a certain limit, to personally benefit would mean that he was engaged in corruption. Onias the high priest had Simon removed, and then Simon went up to the north, and word eventually reached Seleucus IV, that Onias had a significant amount of gold and silver in the temple treasury, and so there was no longer any need for Seleucus to give money to the temple for the sacrificial system. There wasn't any real need for that to occur, and so why bother taking that gold and giving it to Onias when he could use it to help relieve some of the pressure that he was under to acquire gold to give to Rome? Now, after talking about this, you might be wondering, why is it that I would spend so much time talking about gold, talking about the agreements, talking about the labor? Well, the reason why is because this is one of the main reasons for the events that take place in history. This is one of the main reasons why things happen. It's because of money. This is why people make the decisions that they make. This is why people go to war. This is why people defend themselves in war. It's because of money. This is why people work. They work because of money. Money is a very significant component of world events, of life-changing events, of historical events. Look at the treaty that I just described. You think the Romans went to war just so that they could obtain 20 hostages, that they could rotate every three years with the Greeks? Do you think that's what it was about? No, it wasn't about that. It was about the gold. And the treaty defined the amount of gold at 15,000 talents, which was a lot of gold. And so do not underestimate the significance of money. There is an expression that is often used to help identify what is really taking place in life. Perhaps you've heard this expression, follow the money. Because if you follow the money, you'll find out the motives, you'll find out the reasons, and you will find out who the people are who are involved because they are the ones who really benefit from the decisions that people are making. Follow the money and you will have a greater understanding of the events of history 
and you will also have a greater understanding of events that are unfolding right now in your life, and you will also understand why events will probably take place in the future. In most cases, people talk about history from an accidental point of view. You know, there was just this war, it just started, and it was an accident. There wasn't any real reason behind it. Oh, yes, there was. There were probably several reasons behind it. It could have been for gold. It could have been for the rights to water because people need water in order to produce agricultural products. Or maybe they're after something else. Maybe they're after the lead. Maybe they're after lithium. Maybe they're after drugs. It could be a number of things that people are after that motivate people to engage others, to make agreements with others, to start wars. And to many people, it really doesn't matter how many people might die because the end result will be their personal gain. When the Maccabean Wars took place, the religious ideals were significant. But in most cases, you will find that the religious ideals or the philosophical ideals of people are nothing more than ideas to motivate individuals to do things that they normally wouldn't do, but the people who are promoting those ideals, people who are promoting the philosophical or religious ideals as an excuse to engage in destruction or to engage in war or theft, those are the people who are actually benefiting, but not because of the ideals, They are benefiting because of the power or the money or the resources that they will gain possession of or control of after the war is over. And so in this case, this war between Rome and Greece, I believe, was primarily about the money. It was about the ability to obtain additional gold in order to finance whatever operations or projects that the authorities in Rome wanted to use it for in order to support their system. And then later, we had the Maccabean Wars, and I'll tell you that, yes, there were religious and philosophical issues that motivated the Maccabean Wars, but it was also about recovering gold that had been given to the temple when the temple didn't need it, and then further taxation from there. But I will continue with this in the next broadcast. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net Thank you,